What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. When Sammy Kay was young, he worked touring with the Scottalites, King Django, the Slackers, Westbound Train. He lived with Vic Ruggiero for a while, and eventually he played in the trad ska rocksteady group The Forthrights, who were part of a scene in Brooklyn in the late 2000s, early 2010s, led mostly by kids too young to have been part of the third wave ska boom and who preferred the old school sounds. Today, we recount all this history with Sammy and even get into his time playing with several folks that eventually formed Catbite. Sammy brings the stories, and he doesn't hold back at all. His latest record, Inanna, comes out in March, but he'll be releasing two songs from it later in January. Make sure to follow him at SammyKNJ on all social media platforms to keep up with him and his music. The first time I'd ever heard about Sammy K was from Tim from Catbite. Oh, yeah. Tim used to play in Sammy K's band. I think most of Catbite used to play in Sammy K's band, except for Britt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And then I got to meet him this year at Fest. Yeah. And now we're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy's got some uh, strong Scott, rock steady roots, but uh, kind of mostly plays uh, kind of a singer songwriter Americana stuff now. Yeah. If you were to look at Sammy and then try to say that, Ska is, is music for wimps. You'd be wrong. Yeah. Sammy's uh, talking about doing some more ska, though. So we'll see. He mentioned it, and we're, we're expecting some new ska. I welcome a future with more Sammy K ska. So 2023, we want more Sammy K ska. We're putting in our order, our request right now. This is it. All right. So here's a message that you sent me. I got stories. I worked for the Slackers. Leftover Crack, played in Dave's Rocksteady 7, and sometimes Vic played in Pie Tasters and worked for the Scottalites. So my question for you is, were you doing all this at the same time? I did all of that over a three-year period. That's a busy three years. 
each one of those years, I broke 300 shows on the road. Damn. And I had like the, the Sammy band too, at that time too. Like we were doing the fast forwards touring too. Weren't you also doing merch for Westbound Train? Was that the same period? Uh, no. So the trajectory, right? Uh, I met Nuno Rodriguez, the drummer of the Hub City Stompers in, I want to say, 04, 05. Okay. Um, and Nuno took a liking to me and I took a liking to drugs. And, <laughs> and it was a way to get out and, and kind of go to shows and get fucked up. And I was working and working is a loose term uh, for the Hub City Stompers. And through Nuno, I met Django, Mr. Jeff Baker. And I started working at Stubborn Records when I was maybe 15. What'd you do for Stubborn Records? I did a little bit of everything. I did like the packing and shipping for records and, and, and I did office work. But I also, Jeff was teaching me how to record too. So like I... I did a couple of sessions, like I did the Bombtown record with Jeff, where I was just running cables, you know. Uh, I did a Bombtown session. I did like a Hub City Sombra session. Um, I think the Slacker sessions that they did there turned into the Boss Harmony sessions, okay. that record that came out. Um, we did a Sick and Mad record in that time frame, too, when I was hanging out. Uh, and then through Jeff, I had met Obi. Fernandez from Westbound when I was real young, Obi, Obi was the first guy that really took a liking to me. Uh, and that was like maybe Oh two Oh one. It was when searching for melody came out. Uh, and I would hang out with them. And then Obi saw that I was hanging out with Jeff and was like, Hey, if you want to sling shirts at local shows, whatever. And I started selling t-shirts for Westbound. And then I essentially dropped out of high school to go on tour with Westbound. I was starting to bail out. Like I hit California on tour, like, like within 30 days of my lot, like of like my 18th birthday, I might've even been like, I'm, I was barely 18. Um, and I just started running with, with bands and, and we did, I did about two and a half years running with Westbound. Hmm. And through that, Gideon Blumenthal was playing with this band in New York, was sitting in with the forthrights. And Gid turned to me and said, I can't do this. Like, but these are your people. And Gid linked me with Jack and Matt. And that's when I joined the forthrights. And that's when I really started playing in a touring band. And so how old were you? You were when you joined the forthrights? I was maybe 18, maybe okay. 19. I, I definitely couldn't drink, uh, like legally. <laughs> so when you were 18, so probably the same time you lived with, uh, Vic Ruggiero for a while. Yeah. I moved in with Vic. I was 17. Okay. Vic came to my mom's house cause he knew I, they knew I knew how to print t-shirts, right? I met Vic through, through, through Django. Um, they knew I knew how to print t-shirts and silkscreen. I had a little rig in my mom's basement. So Vic and his girlfriend at the time, Jess, came up and we're like, we're making, like, Vic literally drew on a piece of paper, like a Vic cartoon. I turned it into a screen real quick. And we just started printing t-shirts in the basement. 
like a week later, Vic calls, and this is like before I had a cell phone. They called like my mom's house and was like, Hey, I know like you're not of age yet, but like there's a room open in my house. If you want it, you can have it. And uh, I told my folks and my folks were like, like my dad had screwdrivers in his hand, ready to take apart my bed. Like, <laughs> and we legit, like I legitimately like grabbed my records, grabbed a backpack of clothes, grabbed my tour bag. Like my, like I'm, I'm on forever a go bag. I have a go bag in my pickup truck. I have a go bag in my apartment, like depending on where I am. Like I, I 90% of the time have my passport in my pocket because you never know when you're going to end up in Mexico. You never know. Right. Um, so I grabbed like the important things and I ran me and my dad loaded up. Like I had a van at the time already. We loaded up my van and we loaded up my dad's car. We went in and we walk in the house and Ruggiero, Kepi Gooley, Greg from the Souls, and Kevin Seconds are making a record in the living room. <laughs> um, with Gentleman Jim, who's like a New Jersey legend. He's a sound guy. Uh, he ran the Sound of the Lanes forever. He still works at a lot of venues in New Jersey. He was doing something for no effects for a while, too, front of house maybe. And they're making a record in the living room. I'm like trying to load in, like to move into this room in between studio takes. And uh, my dad was a punk. My dad is a punk. Uh, and uh, he reached in my record box because I stole his records, right? Because it's, you know, <laughs> and he grabbed his original pressing of the crew that he bought and went up to Kevin. I was like, hey, man, I'm this kid's dad. Like he's moving upstairs. Like I bought this for me at city gardens in 87. Like, can you sign this for me? And, uh, yeah, that was the day I moved into Ruggiero's. Do you know what album they were recording? Uh, I don't think it ever came out. Um, okay. but it was, they were doing that like vroom vroom Vespa tour. So this is probably Oh six or Oh seven. Okay. And they were like, so Greg and Kevin were riding around on motorcycles and they were doing like, Vespa rides before the show and all the shows were in non-traditional venues. They're all record stores and such, you know, coffee shops, tattoo shops, motorcycle shops. And it, they were just, I, I don't remember what the session is. I don't, I don't think they ever came out, um, but it's Vic. So like, I'm assuming he would always be recording and writing at the house and just compiling. Like, I feel like Vic probably has, 60 records sitting there like not exaggerating um but i feel like some of those songs ended up on that that new dark ages split that kepi and vic did but this is also 22 years ago 20 years ago now you know right your dad had a band when you were growing up that used to play in the basement every sunday yeah my dad my dad was a rock and roller he was in punk bands in in the late 70s and early 80s in new jersey like my old man sold a Telecaster to get me out of the hospital to pay the bill. Uh, it was a 72 deluxe. Wow. When, what year was this? Uh, that was 89. What, what happened in 89? You were a kid. That was when I was born. Oh, when you were born. Oh, when oh he, okay. He, like he sold, he sold the guitar to get me out of the hospital. Oh. Like when I was born, like to pay the exit bill, you know? <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey's a wild place, you know? And then in the nineties, he just, him and a couple guys 
we're playing in the basement every week, you know, a couple of days a week. Um, like, you know, 90 mid nineties, you know, I'm the term now is dad rock, but it was dad rock. It was three chords, you know, a little fuzzy guitars, you know, trying to sound like the gin blossoms in the best way possible, you know? Yeah. Can you remember some of your dad's band's names? The one in, when I was a kid was, they were called cathode Bob. Mm. Um, and, uh, they put out like three records and they play around town, play around New Jersey and New York. Uh, the one in the eighties, the, the big one he had was the gangbusters. Uh, and, uh, there's like a couple of live boots that they had, uh, bootlegs and, uh, that I like, I have them on a hard drive somewhere, but it's straight. There's like, they were doing that thing, like how the clash did, like they would play, um, like they had like 20 flight rock in the set, but they were doing it like if like Strummer and the, the clash were playing and they did great balls of fire and they had like songs they wrote too, but the early rock and roll, like the let's get a rock in songs fucking were, were, were rippers. Mm. Um, the drummer, that band, Eddie McGarry, he, I think he manages and builds motorcycles at Indian Larry's. I don't know what his position is, but he's at Indian Larry's in Brooklyn. And uh, I don't know where the, uh, my dad fixes boats in Florida with the other guy. Okay. Yeah. It's wild. I was at a show once and I was playing and Eddie came up to me. He was like, you look familiar. And I think I'm, I'm friends with your dad. And I'm like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Eddie McGarry. I play, you know, like we grew up together. I'm like, I know exactly who the fuck you are. Like, it's nice to finally meet you, you know, because <laughs> you hear story, you know, my old man's a storyteller. I'm a storyteller, right? That's, that's kind of what I describe myself to be. You know, my dad told me stories of like robbing an ice cream truck at 16 with this guy, you know, like, <laughs> and he fell off the back trying to throw ice cream to his homies, right? The door opening got flung off, like, you know, and, and Eddie McGarry was there, right? And that was the, that was a thing, you know, but yeah, so he, he played in all these bands and that, I think that's the reason why I love music is my father. Yeah. You had it around. Fun little fact is that, uh, back in the eighties, I think, or maybe early nineties, there was a ska band in San Diego called gangbusters. No shit. Yeah. Do they, do they put out a record? Like what years was that? Uh, I do. I remember there being a comp, like a California comp and they were on there. And I think I talked to, one of the members a few years ago and he was like, Oh yeah, yeah. This band. And I was like, Oh, I, I remember that band. Kind of. Yeah. So was that like the same time frame as like donkey punch, right? That's like 87 or whatever. Donkey show you're talking about Dave, Dave's little band. Yeah. yeah. I think it was around that time, maybe just a yeah. little later. Yeah. I think maybe late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's wild. I want to look it up now. <laughs> the no man's land era of ska, right? Like 85 <laughs> to, 89 right like when 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 new york citizens were doing their thing and like early toasters and donkey show and like i feel like oceans 11 was around like the tail end of that in la um but don't quote me on that but like that early like all right we're gonna do this fucking thing that nobody's doing right the specials had already like broken up and reformed and broken up right that shit's wild because there were no rules and they were just figuring it out yeah 
There was no rules and there was uh, very little communication between bands that were in different cities. Yeah. That was the other interesting thing. So bands on the East Coast and the West Coast. I had no idea. Yeah. The story, the Toaster story, they wrote that song Weekend in L.A. Mm -hmm. because the first time they went to L.A., they had no idea that the Untouchables had built this incredible scene in L.A. Yeah. And they were just, holy shit. And then, yeah, that's why they, that was the inspiration behind that song. That's awesome. I didn't know that. So your first exposure to Scott was a Catch-22 show? Going even back, my first exposure to Scott was 95, uh, 96. Um, so my old man, my old man's a, a music guy. I feel like we're just going to talk about my dad, this whole thing. Sure. Why uh, not? My dad's, <laughs> a, a, my dad loves music and uh, he worked real hard. We didn't have a lot growing up, but he worked real hard. And in New Jersey, he went down the shore, right? It was only 80 miles, right? Um, we'd go to Seaside Heights, these little bungalows and rent a house for a week. So my first like proper introduction to ska, knowing I really loved it, I was like six years old and my dad had the sky blue Suzuki Samurai Jeep, uh, doors off, right, top off. And, you know, the cassette player that you pull out and you'd wear it like a messenger bag because there were no locks, no doors. And uh, I remember driving the five miles from the, the beach house with my old brother in the car blasting and out come the wolves like that was it mm -hmm. like i was five my brother was maybe seven it was six and eight right we're two years apart like shouting like time bomb and i remember my dad and my mom in this little kitchen of this house and my dad's like adam we were in fest the other day and i was ranting about something i was like describing it like my dad I did the same thing and said this band could be better than the clash they just need to make a sandinista like they need to do something better than sandinista right this is their london calling they got to do it and then they went and did life on wait which is their sandinista right and that was that was like the moment and like the boston's record came out um i always get them confused pay attention has impression that i get Oh, let's face it. Duh. Let's face it. There you go. Yeah. So he had that too. Um, and I think, so that was 97. That might've been the next summer, but same thing in that Jeep shouting the rascal King. Right. Yeah. Um, and the intro to noise brigade, we would fucking holler. Cause it was only a couple miles. It was 10 minutes. We got two songs each way. <laughs> and it was a cassette. So you kind of just kept, going and looping it right right like i didn't know that rancid record like you know was whatever 18 songs until i got it when i was 10 on my own because we never got more than 20 minutes in <laughs> right so i had no idea like little sammy was a punk rocker was on that record right now like uh, i feel like avenues and alleyways is on the tail end of that record like i had no idea because we never got to it in the car right um but that was my first, my first, um, like, what is this, you know? Um, and then my old man too in the house. There was a, there is a radio station called FMU in New Jersey. On Sundays they do reggae schoolroom, uh, and my dad was a big fan of this radio station. They do like it was a show where two guys, Jonesy and X-Ray Burns, would just ramble about records, and a sweet woman would I can't remember her name, but she play 
early country. But in the mornings, it was this guy Sarge, and he played rock steady and, and and lovers rock and 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 just straight reggae. And everyone sort of be Scott, but it would always there was a lot of rock steady always. Uh, and I knew I loved that. Like I heard, like the Maytals just tell me. And then when I heard it again as a teenager, I knew every word. Right, like as a teen, I was like maybe nine or ten, hanging out with a bunch of skateboarders. Like somebody put on an outcome of the wolves and I knew every word, like to the first half of the record. And like, how do you know this? I was like, because we listened to it as a kid, like years ago. Like, and that, like I I'd forgotten about it, right? And it when it popped back, I was like, oh, this is the fucking shit. This is this is it. But the first, like by choice, like we saw catch um, at it might have been the last show with Thomas or one of the last shows. Um, and then we did a festival called Skate Surf. And then that's when we realized there was a whole local scene. My cousin was a couple of years older and she was into that. That's how we found out about like really fish. And, and that was kind of the spiral. And then once we found a couple bands, uh, there's this band called Too Short Notice, this band called The Super Specs, a band called The Miasmics. Uh, we were seeing Django was playing pretty heavy in New Jersey then because he had moved across the river. Uh, the Hubsy Stompers were playing a lot. It was early HCS. Um, this band called Jade Fire played a lot. And uh, I heard that kid's doing all right, but I have no idea. He started some record label called Not a Good Time, Bad Time. It's called Bad Time. Jade Fire? Yeah. That was like his high school band. Okay. I'm not, yeah. Was it, yeah, it was Jade Fire. They were playing a lot. Uh, and we'd just go to these shows. There were shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every week. And there were there were good bands. And then there were bands like Pirates of the Scarabian, right? That were just like <laughs> kids figuring out. They played 10 shows and they were out, you know? Yeah. They realized Scott wasn't cool in 2002. For kids that grow up in Jersey, it feels like Catch-22 is sort of a rite of passage, whether you're Scott fan or not. Yeah. Uh, the like Kalanicki theory, right? Like, like you at one point are obsessed with something Thomas has done, whether it's <laughs> Keesby nights or everything goes numb or Botar, right? Um, New Jersey is really a football state. Uh, like high school football is real important. And if you don't play football, you're in the marching band, right? So if you're in the marching band, you're going to hear a ska band and be like, oh shit, I can play in this band. Right. And then you get obsessed with it. Right. For a hot thing. Yeah. There's a good chance you played in catch 22 for at least a couple shows. Yeah, exactly. You will be <laughs> in catch 22. Right. <laughs> and it's wild. Cause like, don't quote me, but I believe Jamie Egan, the trombone player on Keysby is a marching band director. Right. And so is. Oh, I thought Kevin Gunther was teaching too, teaching music in a school too, which is funny because now that the, those OG guys are marching band directors, it's great. It's great. Okay, so so earlier you were talking about I, I can't remember the name, the person that sort of introduced you to the scene uh, before Jane. Nuno, yeah, Nuno. Nuno. Okay, you said you, you, but you said that you like drugs and that drugs was like an issue for you. Oh yeah, I Northern New Jersey. Uh, is like the heart of the opioid epidemic. Um, so, and I grew up in like 
we weren't in the all right neighborhood, but we were in an all right community, um, in our right town. So, so if we cut through the woods, we could go to the rich neighborhood and go to the parties and steal their pills. <laughs> and I laugh about it now because because it's been a long time and I'm sober and 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 it's just kind of wild to to reminisce. But um, but yeah, I knew real young like all right, smoking weed, popping pills, like drinking beers, like life is good. Um, or life will be good if I have these things. And, uh, you know, I romanticized the concept of like, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But I also romanticized the fact that if I, if I chase this, even at young age, like 15, if I, if I figure this out, I could leave my hometown. Um, and, and leave, that behind and that's kind of my whole life has been kind of running from where i'm from but you also really celebrate where you're from oh yeah i'm fucking damn proud yeah but i'm also i'm a firm believer there's two kinds of people in this world right there's there's the people that leave their hometown or the people that marry their high school sweetheart and move on the same block as their parents and you know, go to Joey's pizza every Thursday night for the pie special. And on Sundays after church, they go to the diner, right? Like there's two kinds of people. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, I have friends that I grew up with that I, you know, I catch up with every year or so that still have never been on a plane, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're almost 35. You've never left and gone anywhere further than what you can drive in an afternoon. Which is just, it's, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's two different lives, you know? Um, but yeah, so I'm at, I'm at Nuno and I, I, I was like, oh, this guy wants me to load his drums and set up his drums. Like, fuck yeah. Like <laughs> I can leave town. Like we can go to Boston and Nuno somehow convinced my mom to let me go on tour with him. As long as I got to school by 9am on Monday. <laughs> Hey, I guess so. Yeah. Did you make it to school at 9 a.m. on Monday? Uh, pretty much all but one. Uh, we were in, I feel like I told you the story of Fest. Um, we were in <laughs> Chicago and everybody in the car was a little too fucked up. And uh, Chicago to New Jersey is like 13 hours. And like they played and it was some kind of festival weekend or thing. And it was Sunday at nine o'clock and it was like, Yo, if you're going to make it to school, we got to go now. And I didn't know how to drive. And I pretty much learned how to drive in the parking lot of like Leggies in Chicago. And then drove like pops, like, like drank like 15 five hour energies and just drove to New Jersey. And like, you know, that scene in a. Uh, fast times at Ridgemont High when they op- when they open up the van door and like yeah everybody spills the out. beer cans and the smoke piles out like I pull up to school <laughs> and uh, the security guard this guy Sonny is a good guy he passed away last year he was a marine uh, and he always busted my ass he's like you know if you go and join the services you'll straighten up and he'd always whenever I'd show up and, like and get dropped off by the van before school he'd say something like that's not the kind of tour I wanted you to go on. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we pulled up and like smoke billowing out. I hadn't showered in three days. Like I don't have my backpack. 
like crawling out of the van, like completely bloodshot eyes from driving all night. Like, yeah, that's the one time I never made it. And I, and I got there at like 10 in the morning. I missed first period. <laughs> Do you remember what class was first period? <laughs> no, I slept through it every day. <laughs> you were there, but not there. I pretty yeah. much failed at a high school for creative writing. It was, it was probably some form of English class. Cause I didn't give a fuck. Um, I, I mean, I didn't really care about anything. I just, you know, at, at that point it was like, like 14 to like, I was using young, mm-hmm. like I was smoking a deck, like a pack a day by like 12. Wow. Uh, like 13, like I had already buried friends for ODs. Um, and you know, by 15, like suicide was pretty prevalent in my life. Um, so 14 to like pretty much till I sobered up, it was just like get fucked up as much as possible, go and see as many shows, play as many shows. And, you know, I used it as an escape, like tour was an escape. So when I was at school, when I had to go, um, I, I just tuned out. Like they sent me to technical school and like technical school didn't even want me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm fairly certain somebody paid the school off to give me a diploma. Like I never took a test. I never took finals my senior year. But like, they let me go. Um, but yeah, they they were trying to hold me back the week before high school graduation, a couple weeks before, because I got in a fight and I was failing creative writing. That's when I was. I just want to go on tour. Like I'd already been on tour. Like I didn't. I knew that school wasn't good. Like right for me. Right. Like it was like, let me go on tour with my fucking ska band. Like let's fucking go. Of all the classes for you to fail, though, creative writing. Creative writing. I literally get paid to write songs for people. <laughs> right, man. I literally get paid to write songs for people. And it's, you know, it's wild because, you know, you get prompts when you write for people. They don't tell you who it is. And you get things like, all right, we need a major, a major key song about a red hat and falling in love. Uh, for a teen pop country singer. Like I get shit like that. And then I get shit. Like I'm writing some songs for the pie tasters right now where Jackson turned to me and said, want to write some songs. I'm like, yeah, yeah. What do you want to be about? He's like murder suicide. And I'm like, what's the tag? He's like, who goes first? (laughs) Okay. Like, that's great. I will write a song about murder suicide where the hook is like, all right, who's killing who? (laughs) <laughs> you know who's going first so you're talking about you're talking about this 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 period of time where you're with these bands so i'm looking at the bands westbound train you know i know that's earlier slackers uh rocksteady seven yeah uh, pie tasters scottalites okay all of those bands seem relatively tame compared to leftover crack aro was playing drums for leftover crack and i was tour managing the slackers and he called me and was like, hey, like, do you want to do these runs driving? And they were cool runs. It was like to go to Riot Fest to see the Descendants. Like, yes, I'll go see the Descendants like, and work for you. But I mean, as a, as a person who uses, uh-huh. Leftover Crack seems like a, 
a carnival, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> right. <laughs> At the time, like that was, I feel like 90% of that van was sober at the time. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, and that 10% was like Aura, who has a beer every six months. Like I, I worked for the Slackers on and off for, like I've worked with Aura for, it was like six years. I think I had three beers with him over six years. Mm. Like every once in a while, he like he's like, he'll literally say something like, Sammy, today I feel like howling at the moon and we'll have a beer after the show. And it was so infrequent, right? And um, Angela, Alec Bailey, uh, the bass player, his wife at the time uh, would have like a beer or two a night. Okay, so the, the, the drug users of the band were sober at that point. Yeah, everybody was pretty much sober. I, and and I, like working for bands, I was smart. This is how smart I am. I would do uppers all day to be high and work. Right. And then the second I like clocked out, it was like, all right, let's fucking get wrecked. Because uh, <laughs> I could function driving all day and setting a merch and running a show on Coke and speed, but I couldn't do it on fucking heroin and pills, you know? Did, was this like a secret? Because I'm thinking like, I know slackers, they like to drink or whatever, but they're like, they're not hard drug users and they're very like road dogs, you know? No, I'm, no, no, no. I, I, like, like when I sobered up, a lot of people didn't know. They had no idea. So you were, you were good at kind of keeping it. I was secret. good at keeping it, keeping it straight. And I had days where it was like, oh man, like me and Jay would go to Taco Cabana and get $4 margaritas. And have a little too many, but like, yeah, I kept it pretty straight because I wasn't doing the kind of drugs that like, like, like I wouldn't like with my band, like you can ask like Tim and Ben and from Capite, Chris joined the band when I was sober already, but you can ask like Tim and Ben, like they probably have horror stories of me, like just obliterated for two weeks straight in the van. Um you know, holding on for dear life. Um, but when it, when it came to working for bands, it was like, I know I have to do this job. And I, I was getting paid real well to do this job. Like I didn't have a, like a, a boss, like a boss boss, like a proper, like on paper boss until I was like 29, 28. Like I never had a job that I had a boss. It was always working for friends when I was home from tour or working for bands, you know? I see. Yeah. So you, you wanted to keep the tour lifestyle. Yeah. I figured, I figured out how to, how to function and, and, you know, just get at it. You know, I was, I, I put the fun and functioning addict. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your time uh, living with Vic Ruggiero, I read that you guys spent many hours, uh, Drinking beers and arguing about Bob Dylan records. Yeah, that was the best. <laughs> yeah, we, we, so Vic, when he was home, when Vic was on tour, we didn't really commune, right? It was uh, Phil Nurgis who wrote that Don't Feed the Cats in Iraq book that did the record with Vic um, and a couple other characters this girl charlene this kid jake um we all kind of lived but when vic was home we 
we'd commune in the living room and tell stories and listen to records. And, and like, I feel like Vic, like the time that Vic was home and we were hanging out doing that, like I learned so much about like, like I had no idea who the fuck Tom Waits was until I lived in that house. Um, and even like with like Springsteen, like I liked Springsteen, like my dad liked Springsteen, but I didn't love Springsteen. Like, like Vic was the one that was like, yo man, like you're telling me you haven't listened to Nebraska yet. Like that shit fucked my world up. I've literally spent the last 15 years trying to figure out how to make a Nebraska like in my head after hearing, after Vic saying like, no man, you got to listen to this like Atlantic city mansion on the hill. Like, trust me. Um, but yeah, we would just, Rant, and I'm not a Dylan guy at all. I respect him. Like, if Dylan was a baseball player, he'd be batting less than a hundred, right? <laughs> True. He he had a really good couple rookie seasons, right? And his slug percentage was out of the park, right? When he hit the ball, he hit the fucking ball, right? Like that shit was going from Yankee Stadium to Seaside Heights, New Jersey. Like we're talking. Miles and miles and miles, right? But like after like 67, like after the motorcycle crash, there's gems, right? But he never was as good of a player as he was in those first couple years. Sure. I mean, he even had like a Jesus freak phase for like three records and then <laughs> stopped, then like changed again. <laughs> right. Like if we're talking the first 10 Dylan, like up to 67, like like his rookie, like his first eight years, like we're talking like a 900 batting average, right? Like, like with probably an 80% slug percentage, right? And then after the motorcycle accident, right? Like the basement tapes are cool, but in my eyes, they're unfinished. Nothing is done. It's a bunch of guys jamming, right? And like 67 to like, there's some really cool records in the late seventies, right? Like, like blood on the tracks is I think 78, right? Like that kind of that, that late seventies. Um, God, what's the other one? They just did the documentary on it. Like that tour or like the rolling thunder review era. Right. And then he drops off, right? He had a good season and then he drops off for another 10 years. Then he got like the Wilburys, which is like the all-star game. Right. Right. Like you got Ringo, you got, or you got, you got George Harrison, you got Tom Petty, you got Dylan, you got Roy Orbison. Right. And Jeff Lynn, you can't go wrong. It's going to be great. Right. Good, good all star game. 10 years later, he comes back for the, 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 I think I can still play and you get time out of mind in like 97. Right. And then there's nothing after 97. Yeah. Those hanging out with Vic listening to records like because he wanted to show me like this is what it can be this is what it can be like this is what it can be like i found my love for thin lizzy in that living room like that was played a lot jake would play that a lot and just general like like i thought chuck berry was old man's music you know like Roy Orbison was shit my grandpa was listening to and then like living in that house like and I, I didn't know things like Nigerian funk existed or like like Pakistani psych 
right? Like, yeah, like that, that shit sounds so weird coming out of my mouth, but like that's Ruggiero, you know? Was yeah. there any stuff that he played for you that didn't stick? It was definitely weird stuff. Like what? Like weird, like, 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 like I'm not a big psych guy. Like I don't really love things like Zappa or Zappa bass, like that kind of proggy stuff. Like there was stuff like that he would play that even now to this day, like I still don't get, like I don't, you know, but like I'm a songs guy. Like I don't care how it's played. If the song, the skeleton of the song, right? Your chords, your melody, your lyrics are great. Like and versatile, like you can play it any way. Right. Right. Like shares deeply in love is the most perfect song. Right. You can play that in every style of music from 1930 until now. Right. Started Robert Johnson and Delta Blues, like big band in the forties, like, you know, jazz in the late thirties. Right. 52 Chuck Berry's playing it like 1960. The Ronettes are singing. Right. You can just go. Cause that song is so universally written. Right. It can be on Ramon's record. Like it can be on, a Tiffany record or Madonna record in 87, you know, like it's just, it's a perfect record. It's a perfect song that like some of that proggy stuff and the super riffy spacey, like it just doesn't click for me, you know? Yeah. I think, I think Frank Zappa's sixties stuff is really good, but kind of loses me in the seventies. Like, yeah, I can't we're only in it for the money. I think is a, like a masterpiece record of satirical rock. Um, that's not that complicated. It's not that proggy, but it's really, really like a biting satire on like hippie culture. Yeah. Which is wild. Cause like, like a band like Credence is also hippie culture and they're the greatest band eggers ever exist. You know, they, they're a perfect band. They had a perfect catalog. What my, one of my favorite lyrics of all time is, is on that Zapper record. And it is, um, What's the ugliest part of your body? I think it's your mind. That's great. That's a good right? lyric. <laughs> and I like, and with me, like now I want to go listen to Zappa because like, I would have never heard that if you didn't bring it up. <laughs> Cause I'm like, why is this trumpet getting run through fucking a Marshall half stack dime with a phaser on top of it? And why does it sound like somebody's farting into a snare drum? <laughs> you know? Like that's zap in my head, right? Yeah. Oh, I've I've had many Zappa friends who've gotten into the real weird stuff that totally loses me. Right. Like I love the Grateful Dead when they're doing songs. Yeah, yeah. When they do like when it's more like bluegrass inspired. Yeah, or early Americana. It's yeah, you know whatever you want to call that. Then because Americana is some made up shit they made to make that <laughs> be whatever yeah <laughs> it's what americana it's, is it's the we don't know like the word country music is not country anymore so let's call this americana and maybe we'll sell some records you know but yeah like the dead stuff where it's songs it's just amazing but like i don't need to hear like i don't want to hear a 45 minute guitar solo <laughs> yeah me neither like we just wrapped on a record um and uh, I set a limit, 12 lyrical statements. Every song is 12 lines, and that's it. There's one song on that record that's 16, and I thought that the chorus should be repeated twice. 
right? Everything's under three minutes. It's quick stories. Like, and by the time you're like tired of hearing the chorus the fourth time in a regular song, like that song's already done. Short attention span, like quick, quick little sonnets or whatever, you know? Okay. I want to, I want to jump to uh, the fourth rights. So you, you mentioned them, you joined the band, the band, the band already existed. I, I assume the band had not existed for very long before you joined. Um, yeah, they didn't really play a show. I think they might've played two shows. Um, okay. And that band, so Mirren was playing piano and he was going to college in Montreal or Edinburgh. I can't, I always, he lives in Montreal now. I think he was going to school in Europe. And that's why Gideon was filling, filling in. And Gideon was like, I don't really, this isn't for me, but this is for you. And I could hack it a little bit. And I showed up and I realized that hacking a little bit meant that there were more keys to hit than just the white ones. Um, so, <laughs> so we slowly realized that. And then I started playing guitar because we got like the chemistry was great. Like it was a couple of maniacs, like that all understood the big picture. And Jack was a better piano player than I was. And I was a better guitar player for what they needed than Jack was. Could you explain to so anyone who's never heard the fourth rights, um, what, what the band sound like? The fourth right sounded like a bunch of kids listening to rock city records on broken radios. Mm-hmm. We, it, you know, it had that garage tone, but we were also hotheads and we didn't understand that you had to stay behind the beat. So everything was a little aggressive, but it was pretty in an aggressive way. It was, it was a loud fit of anxious rock steady rage. That's what that band sounded like. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and we also sounded like the slackers and that's why people liked us. Um, but uh, no, I, I kid, I kid. Um, it was, we called it Garage Rock Steady, right? The guitars yeah. were a little fuzzier. And it wasn't in the sense of like the Agrilites, because the Agrilites, like the tone was really re- recording wise. Like they, the, the amps were a little hot, but the grit was all how those records were produced. Yeah, the, the Agrilites have much more aggression than I think the Forthrights. Yeah, we were just we were just a bunch of kids trying to write songs and 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 you know and and get out of I mean at the start it was get out of New York. Mm-hmm. You know, let's go. Like we could do like we could do this. And and to be fair, I think everybody that was in that band when we were pretty heavy minus Jack are still doing it. But um yeah, it was just this like it was a bunch of punks and hipsters trying to figure out how to play Jamaican music and on broken amps. Like all of our amps are broken. That's why like the guitar tones were like my bass had had no mid or high scoop on it. It was broken. I just had low end. Like I just would thump um, when I was playing bass in that band. But yeah, it was just, it was, it was, an anxious fit of rock steady rage. That's how I would describe that band. So there, there, be, there kind of builds a scene of this style of music in uh, Brooklyn, and you are kind of you're kind of instrumental. You and uh, Agent J uh, from the Slackers. Uh, me and Jay were were we realized like we were a band, um, and then uh, this kid Tito who lives up in Boston 
had this spot called the Bushwick Music Studio, and we all kind of started congregating there. Uh, Jacob Wakeup and Bob Tim and Juan Cardenas, uh, and I can't remember the rest of the people in that band's name. I feel like an asshole. I uh, had this band called The Hard Times. It was like all instrumental, early reggae. And John Pinto from the Cold Spot 8 was DJing. And, and, and he went by Ja Point and Gracie, Grace, Grace of Spades. And there was just this crew. Uh, Brett Tubin and, and was hanging out a lot. And he always had some band going. And um, at the time, the Green Room Rockers were touring a lot. And the Pinstripes were touring a lot. And that's like kind of why we started doing it was to get shows for the Green Rockers. The Pinstripes are for whatever band that was passing through. Um, Cause we all had friends and bands that wanted to come to New York, right? New York is the Mecca. Like, you know, you go to New York, LA or Austin. Like that's, that's, those are the three. Like nobody's really trying to go to West Palm beach, Florida. The, the sort of the, 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 the vibe is like, um, mostly like rock steady and early reggae, right? And like a little less on the ska end. Yeah, I was the one that pushed the ska. There was only really three, like we maybe had three ska songs in the set by the end of it. But I mean, the, the scene, the bigger picture of the scene, like the DJs and the hard times, it was like early reggae, not, not 70s reggae, like 60s reggae and like rock steady stuff. 64, 65 to 72. Okay. Was what the start of it was. And then by the end of it, it started pushing later because that's when like the Frighteners were a thing. And like Maddie Ruthless had come to town and she was big on the early dance hall. And Grace was starting to spin early dance hall records. Um, there was a whole nother crew in town doing it. Uh, this record store called Deadly Dragon. And they were like, or you could go and get like Studio One test presses, like dub plates. Like the most ridiculous stuff he had. And he was also running like a, a scene that was a little more on that rocker's roots tip more than we were. And eventually they intertwined, you know? So there was a thing called Dirty Reggae Parties. And um, now I understand that the very first Dirty Reggae Party Jay put on as an after party for a forthright show for you. Do I understand that right? I think the first. Dirty Reggae Party. Um, the first Dirty Reggae Party was, I think it was an after party for another show. It was a forthright show, though. Okay. Um, it was at the Glass House. So can you can you kind of paint a picture of what the the Dirty Reggae Parties were like? They were just bonkers because it was we were in lofts and in Brooklyn and. The PAs were shit. Stages were not really there. And it was just, it started out small, like 20 or 30 kids. And like within a couple months, there was a hundred kids in these lofts that you're smoking darts in and smoking weed. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure we kept four loco in business for about five years, four years. Because <laughs> they were late. Yeah. Um, but it was like, it was a combination of DJs and bands or was it mostly DJs? Yeah. Yeah. It was usually like, like it was usually Jay and like a collection of like Jay, Rata, John Point, John Pinto, Grace, and whoever was traveling in too, like Tikla was doing some at towards the end. And like Victor Rice was in New York and had records and Brett Tubin would come and spin records. And Tito, who I mentioned before, he would always spin records and we just all fucking hang out. 
and it doors were at seven, first band at eight thirty, and we'd leave there at six in the morning. <laughs> That's <Damn>. so much music. <laughs> but after after midnight, it was only a four band bill, maybe a three band bill. But after midnight, it was just a party of people dancing to records and hanging out. And, and that was the glory of it was it wasn't right. You guys see those old like documentaries on punk? Yeah. Like London yeah. punk. Sure. Where there's just a bunch of kids that are figuring out who they are in, in a room listening to records and smoky and like you see a punk and a skinhead and then you see a straight square right? A civilian, right? It was like that, right? It was just this group of people that didn't fit in together that knew we all enjoyed this music. And, and, and that's kind of how it all happened. And it all went by, like, we never got press on it. Like, like the local, like the Brooklyn newspapers never posted that we had a show, right? Like the village voice or whatever. We just, it was all word of mouth. Like, oh man, we're having a party. Like, come hang. And like towards the tail end of it, there was a hundred, two hundred. Like, we did one where like it was some form of slackers adjacent band, but like there was a line up the block on a five dollars for a plastic cup. When we're out of the keg, it's a dollar PBR party. It was it was fucking wild so the djs would they just play them the really obscure tracks or was it a combination of like the known you know the, the songs that your average person might recognize it would depend it would depend on who it was like if john pinto was spinning you know you were going to hear like some killer Maytel ska and then you're going to hear like it hurts to be alone by the whalers like like everybody kind of had their staples um but it wasn't until later on that like you'd start hearing the obscure wild like because they were we, like john definitely had obscure like and rare because he was 20 years older than us 15 years older than us j2 um but like rata grace like they were all like now we're like we're all like kind of under 35 like 30 to 35 yeah so as as we learned right that whole scene was also a bunch of people learning and and like studying Cause like we'd hear some shit that Jay would play like a rhythm and like somebody would run and be like, Jay, what's that record? We find it on YouTube and figure out that rhythm. And then, it, then you'd hear the Frighteners playing that style song or the hard times doing a crazy, like based off of some obscure Harry J instrumental, you know? Um, and it started out as us like really just being like a bunch of kids trying to like early 20s kids trying to play this music to like towards the end we all knew like oh yo fuck you'd say like drop that part like in that all nell song and we'd all know exactly what that pattern was you know what i mean like it was really like like looking back the old heads in that scene like showed us all and like it, it's kind of like the living room with vic man like we we learned so much and you know it was just wild it was just, it was real wild to think that like there was nothing. And we, you know, when I left town, there was something and there still is something now. Now we're pushing 12 years later or some shit like that. 13 years later, they're still doing these parties. They're not doing them every week, but they're still, they're still there. So the, the frighteners were there. You, you said this before 
kind of came in at the tail end. But um, before the Frighteners started, those guys were coming to shows. Dan Dan Klein, Dan Klein, the singer of that band, he would like sit in sometimes with the Hard Times. This is before Frighteners. Yeah, he would sit in with the Hard Times, and he would sit in. He would sing, come up and sing with like Forthrights and whoever. But the cool thing about those parties is guys like Dan and Django and John. Uh, Maddie Ruthless when she was in town they just we'd have a mic set up by the records and if somebody wanted to sing on top of a record it just went tell people a little bit like what Dan Klein was like as a singer you know when he was either playing just fit filling in you know just joining another set or with the partners so Dan Dan like like if you don't know Dan Dan looked like a tough motherfucker (laughs) Like I, as a six foot one, like, and at the time, like I was tattooed, like my, like, like my hands were done by the time I quit the forthrights. Like I was visibly tattooed. Like I, I would not want to meet Dan in an alley. And he was like five, four, but like that dude looked like he could scrap. Right. And he sounded like he was from Queens. Right. Like I got a bad New Jersey, but like that dude had like he had the accent right he had he had the jargon right but dan the first time i heard dan sing i thought i was listening to a record i was in the other room and i heard like some dude singing and i'm like what the fuck is this record and i pop into the booth to see what jay or whoever was spinning was playing and i see this scrappy little punk kid singing and and then we just were like, what the fuck? And then the first the same thing happened. We were, we were like at the Brooklyn Bowl for some show. And it was like Frighteners, us, and like maybe Slackers, the Pie Tasters, or somebody. And I'm like at the bar, like three sheets in. And I, I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I turn around, it's the Frighteners. And it sounds like an old Rocksteady record, right? Like Dan, Dan had the voice of an angel shouting at God. That's how I would describe Dan's voice. It was the prettiest thing, but filled with the most sorrow. And he could be singing about the happiest thing, but the way his tone and projection and the gravel in his voice and and the airiness of it and the thickness of it, it just sounded like he was angry at God, you know? Yeah. And that's what that bit, like the players in the band were great, but like, like Dan was something else. I mean, and, and they all were like Rich and Preet and, and Chucky, like they all knew, they all got it. It was the perfect chemistry of musicians and singing and writing. And like out of all the bands that came out of that, fuck, out of probably all the bands I've ever met, like the Frighteners are the only band that I'd ever, like that I wanted to see, like get signed to Daptone, right? They, they were the one, like get signed to that dream label. Right, like they were the ones. Yeah, of, of all the bands that have like adopted a, a sort of a, a deliberate retro sound, I feel like the Frighteners did it the best. Yeah, to where like they capture they capture that time that specific time period, and it sounds like that time period, but it also sounds like something else. And and it's wild, like because like pre playing bass, he was playing like an old sixties cheap Japanese bass, like the same kind of basses that were in Kingston. Mm-hmm. But they would play like solid state crate amps, right? They didn't, it wasn't like they were playing like vintage Fender Twins, like how Jay or like I had a, I had a, I had a couple vintage Twins or whatever. They were playing like 
cheap gear. <laughs> like when the Frighteners started playing, like Chuck, he was playing a Casio that was spray painted gold. Like it wasn't a Roland VK7 or a Nord or like, like Jack had a, a, an old Wurlitzer he would play with the fourth rights, right? Because he could bang on it and make it overdrive and sound gritty, right? Um, like Chucky was straight up playing a fucking Casio <laughs> on the organ setting, right? And I swear to God, that same fucking gold spray painted, like I feel like that's the same organ they use on that fucking record. It, it's just, it, it, I don't know what they did, but they did, they did it right. And they did it perfectly. Yeah, it just goes to show that, I mean, it doesn't really matter the gear. Like it's going to come through you no matter what. No, it's all about the, the kind of shoes you have when you press pedals, tone boots. It's all about the tone boots. <laughs> no, it's funny. Like even now, like I, I, I was like obsessed with like, I want to buy a custom shop Gibson, right? Like I want, like I bought a guitar yesterday for 150 bucks two days ago. It sounds better than like my $4,000 acoustic guitar. Like a junky, broken, old 50s Sears catalog guitar. And I'm like mad. I'm like, God, I love this guitar, but this like fucking plywood guitar sounds better. Like it doesn't matter. It's it's going back to songs. Sorry, I'm super non sequitur, right? Going back to songs, <laughs> right? Songs, like I don't write songs. Like the ghosts in my guitars guide me, right? I'm a fucking weirdo. And it's the same thing with gear, right? I don't think the Frighteners could have done what they did if they had like a Fender P bass and an Ampeg SVT. Sure, yeah. Right? Like, I think those broken amps and, and fucking weird guitars drove that band to figure it out, you know? Well, and you just play through the in, the instrument. Like, you're not yeah, relying on the sound at all. You're fighting against it almost. Yeah. Were you still in the forthrights when they um, were on tour and played a block party in New Orleans? Yeah, yeah, that was um, 2011, I think. Yeah, I left Forthrights in 12. We had done it. Actually, honestly, it was that tour. That tour. That was like kind of the last tour. It was like a 90 day tour. 90 days. Jesus. Yeah, we did. It was real dumb. We did this tour to Block Party. I, me and Jimmy Doyle convinced Dave. K from Mustard Plug to let us do a Young Guns of Ska tour and like give us a bunch of merch and we'll book it and it'll be a Ska's Dead tour, like the kids. So it was We Are the Union, Us, Green Rockers, Stuck Lucky, Brunt of It. Jimmy got the fat on a couple shows. Somebody else too. So we did this tour and 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 the first leg of the Ska's Dead tour, the 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 anchor was block party. It was wild because we knew like New York was cool and like we were doing all right in Jersey and like Philly and Boston or whatever, but we'd never been that far. And, like we were doing okay in Chicago with like deals would have us out all the time, but we never like, like once we got to New Orleans, like, oh shit, this is like people traveling in for this and they all like it was cool. It's like the first show out of our hometown that I caught like more than a couple people singing along. Yeah. So, um, Greg, uh, Rodrigue from, uh, yeah. Um, bad operation community records, the, 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 the main, one of the main people behind block party 
fatter than Albert, man. Come on. Yeah, fatter than Albert. They um they he made like a DVD of that particular year, and so it has a clip. Yeah. of, you know, forthrights are in there, but there's a clip of uh, Stuck Lucky. I think you played like right before RX Bandits who headlined, mm-hmm. and yeah. Stuck Lucky. I don't know what song they're playing, but they're just being swarmed by audience members um, while they're playing some really fast Scott punk song on stage. And every time during the verse, the, the audience sort of scatters on stage, just kind of wandering around. And then during the chorus, they just swarm the singer, like this pile of people with the singer on top of it, waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the right. Moment. And everyone's yeah. just singing along and uh, diving in, uh, into the audience. And then as soon as they go back to the verse, the audience sort of scatters and sort of waits for the next chorus to just mob yeah. the singer again. It's the craziest thing. I think Stuck Lucky is maybe the greatest modern, right? Post 05, 07, um, Scott Corbin. I think Jonesy is maybe the greatest front man doing that. I think Will, I think the whole gang. Like, I want to be in Stuck Lucky. I've been wanting to be in that band for fucking 15 years. <laughs> if you're listening, Stuck Lucky. Oh, they know. I harass them every time I see them. Every time I see them, I'm like, I want to be in that band. Maybe one day. Maybe one day I'll be in Stuck Lucky. So what was it like for you? So there wasn't a whole lot of bands doing more of a traditional sort of sound at a block party. No, we were like, we were kind of the only ones really touring. Like, like Green and Rockers and Pinstripes were going. Pinstripes had pinstripes like did the cannonball in the pool a little after like I quit fourth rights. Um, and green room started growing up around the same time, right? They, you know, they were torn, but then they started getting real jobs and like, all right, we're only going to do a weekend to Chicago and back or let's beeline it to New York. But we were really like the only ones of the young gang right? The under 25s doing it. And there were bands all over the country doing it. Like we were able to play with like a traditional esque band almost every night. Right. It wasn't like we were, we were oddballed in a punk slash ska punk slash stock or show. Like we got to play with like soul bands and reggae bands. Like, like we weren't playing with 311 bands every night, but then most of them just didn't tour. Yeah, they just they just didn't tour. There's the anomaly with traditional, and that's California, where there's just the killer band on every corner. But they also would tour just California and Vegas. They would never even go to Phoenix. Yeah, uh, which is the same different distance from LA to San Francisco. They just wouldn't go south. But yeah, it was it was kind of cool. I think that's why people kind of dug us was because we weren't doing. I mean, they dug us because we were handsome devils. Really, let's let's <laughs> let's let's face it. But it was also like we were kind of taking time on that. You never knew what was going to happen, too. How so? We didn't hate each other, but like <laughs> we would get in fist fights over who would get the the bench. <laughs> Everybody has the seat they like in the van. Yeah, but we had one bench that you could sit by yourself, and we would straight up wrestle each other after loading to get the bench. Like we were somewhere and we were, we were wrestling for the bench and like, I like power bomb, like straight up WWE, like, like take that fucking Vince McMahon, right? Like wrecked Matt Birdie's elbow. It was like maybe the day before block party. It was that week. 
Because <laughs> Duck Lucky had no idea that a band could, like, I remember, maybe it was really, you know, like, like you guys really do that over a seat in the van? I'm like, yeah, that's what we do, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that was, like, the kind of the glory of the band is we were, like, a time bomb. And we knew we were going to destruct. And we destructed, you know, I was pretty deep in, like, we all love to drink beer. That was it. We were, we were, we were, you know, we would practice on a Thursday sober, go out drinking on Friday and practice at two in the morning wasted. <laughs> so we knew we were really good if we were sober and we could play tight if we were drunk. Oh, smart. You do the sober and the drunk practice. Yeah. We would write sober and then we figure <laughs> it out drunk, right? It was, uh, that band was, I don't know. It was really cool, and I'm super grateful for it, because like those early years with Westbound and then with Fourth Rights, like like they legitimately shaped me, and like a network of touring that I still use today, fifteen years later. I still sleep at the same house in San Francisco that I slept at the first time I was there. Wow, where's that house at? Oh, Strange Manor, Richmond, California. Jimmy uh, at the time. Ray Sildu, who I'm actually going to go see tonight. He's playing in Columbus with the Black Keys. Um, uh, Ray, Jimmy Boom from the Phenomenons, he's been filling with Slackers, and Liz lived there. Liz Lazic. It was just this weirdo, like it was the Phenomenons house on the top of a hill in Richmond. And still to this day, I'm in San Francisco, like we go to Strange Manor. That's not the, the, control, the control center? Mission no. Control Center. It's yeah. not the warehouse. So Jimmy lived like a a mile from the control center, right? The control center angel lived at. That was his like kind of warehouse space. They had like another house that had a studio in the basement. How those dudes have so much stuff. <laughs> they had like a, they had a bus and then they had like a short bus and they decked both of them out to look like spaceships. I think the bus died and then they got the short bus. I, last I talked to Jimmy about that band, they had, they bought another bus. I don't know if it runs, but um, yeah. That dude rules, Jimmy Boom. Last time I saw Jimmy Boom, I was at the, it was in Refused Reunited and they were playing at the Warfield. And I just looked over and he was, he was standing right next to me. And I looked all around and everybody at that show was, was a band dude. <laughs> With that, that perfect Jimmy Boom shitting grin, like not like nothing can beat Jimmy Boom's smile. <laughs> like, like literally if I'm, I think that if I'm on my deathbed, like tomorrow, and they're like, what do you want? I'm going to be like, <laughs> yo, I want a Jimmy Boom smile, a slice of pizza from Tabor Pizza in New Jersey, uh, a turkey sandwich from, from Frank's in New Jersey, and, uh, and a solid ice cream cone. Like, that's my last wish. <laughs> and then he can go. And then I can go. I just, Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy's like, he's got this little smirk. He's, you know, he says, Hey bud, like kind of like Spicoli. And like, when you hear it, it's like, yeah, you are the greatest dude in the fucking world. Straight up, Jimmy. So, so after, after fourth rights, you, there is Sammy K and the fast four. That started that, that was me and Jesse Litwa who plays an iron sheet now. Uh, at the time he was in a band called Royal city riot, which was like a megalith band and Vito, the drummer of that band. And Danny from the fad 
and this kid Chuck Raina, who I think is in LA. He was in LA the last time I was there, living there. So I'm not sure where he's at now. He might be in Austin, but we we started a band. This wasn't the band that Tim was in? No. So so those guys couldn't tour. None of them, they just they they like Jesse was busy with all their bands and whatnot. And Danny was like apprenticing to be a tattoo artist and Chuck was Chuck. Like we only played two shows with that lineup. And then the snails popped up and that's, that's kind of where the, the Tim thing happened. Oh, so they were, so were the snails your backup band or just temporary backup band or what? Yeah, we kind of, we did, we met them and we hung out and it was, it was great and super fun. We we're laughing. And then we we're like, all right, let's do shows. Like, why don't you guys learn the set and we'll go. And we were doing, we did like about six months of touring, like two weeks every other month, 10 days every other month with, as like Sammy, we do like Sammy band set and then a snail set. And slowly, like Todd didn't really want to do the double sets. So Todd, we just started touring separately. So like me and Tim and Ben, Ben did a bunch and this kid Mikey did a bunch jumping back and forth on bass. And um, Josh from the Snails played drums, uh, and we toured like that for like four, four or five years, um, in some iteration of like a couple of Snails guys and floaters. And then Chris, like the last two years of it, Chris Perez showed up, pretty much Caplight. Yeah, Chris, Ben, and Tim, and that was like the golden era. In my eyes, like that was like the holy shit, we're like really good. Like we're not just fucking around. Like the shows were getting good. We were doing like a lot of a lot more bigger support shows. We were getting support tours and we sounded like a band. And you were doing like reggae, uh rock steady ska type stuff primarily, right? Yeah, we were doing doing doing, you know, that that the the thing. We were playing the songs off of Love Letters and we made I have like maybe 20 songs that like with Tim and, and Chris and, and Josh and Ben and whoever was around that we never finished on a hard drive, but we were playing Lover stuff and new stuff. And, and a lot of the last batch of songs turned into the songs in untitled the second record, um, the second rock and roll record. Um, but, um, but yeah, they, that crew, I think I learned, like, I learned how to be in a band with, like, guys at the Slacks, like, watching their relationships with each other and, like, learning the dichotomy of living in a band for 20 years with people. Of You know, from watching them with the Slacks and the Pies and, and, and those bands. But when we were out with Tim and, like, that lineup, that's when we realized, like, holy shit, we're turning into one of those bands, you know? But like Tim was with me for something like six years, seven years. And this, this, you were, um, your addiction was at its worst at this point. Yeah. That tail end, like the last, last leg we did the last year of touring we did together, maybe a year and a half. I was sober. I sobered up in April of 14, but that, that maybe that last year before I sobered up 23 to 24 was fucking bad. It was just brutal. Um, 
like, I, you know, you open up Facebook and see memories. Like there, there was a tour poster the other day that I have zero recollection. Oof. Like I have no recollection of doing that tour at all. I don't remember the entire a single tour. thing. The entire tour. Cause I would just fucking rage all night and sleep all day. Just sleep it off in the van. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> like, uh, the, <laughs> there, there were some bad nights. Uh, I think Tim finally got fed up. We were in, I was playing guitar for the pie tasters and the snails to the show. And I rode back with them. It was like the day before Christmas Eve in Detroit or Lansing. I think that was like maybe a fed up moment. And I ended up sobering up like a month and a half later, two months later. Um, but yeah, it got real bad. So what was the triggering event that caused you to get sober? Um, there were, it was like kind of a string of events. Um, mainly it was me not knowing my mental health and understanding that like, Oh shit. Like I have, I have, I have a not right mind. Like my mind is wired a little different. Like now I know more, but I'm also eight years of pretty heavy therapy into it. You know, eight years of therapy, about three years of like two weeks. Um, but, but, it, it was definitely, it was a bunch of like, and it, there were two attempted ODs in a week, uh, like intentional overdose. Uh, like everything kind of was falling apart. Uh, like not even at the seams, just shredding. And I'd found myself, it, it was just time. I thought it was time to go. So you had a moment of clarity where it became clear that this path was a death sentence. No, the moment of clarity was the death sentence. Like I, 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 you know, I was, I was gone, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, I put enough drugs in me to kill a couple of people. Uh, and, and that was it. I kind of woke up the next day. I called bean. Uh, this would be April, April 13th. I OD'd in a hotel room in Dallas. We were out with the slackers. I drove overnight and I got back and I just fucking obliterated myself. I came to and it was just in bad shape. Like the, the hotel room, like I like went to Walmart and bought a screwdriver, like fucked up trying to fix this hotel room. I fucking wrecked. Uh, I got on a plane home. I went home. Home was in complete disarray. Uh, did the thing again. Came to the next day, did the thing a third day, and I called Bean Greer, who ran Panic State, him and his brother Chris. Chris was in Catch-22. I called Bean. I was like, yo, man, uh, let me crash at your house. And he said, no, but I'll drive you to rehab. And, uh, and the dude picked me up and drove me to rehab. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was a rocky jump the first couple weeks out of rehab, but, but it stuck. And uh, that was, you know, eight and change years ago. We're coming up on nine years. How was it having somebody to say it to you like that? Like just cutting you off and just being like, no, nah, how about I drive you to rehab? Uh, people were saying it for a long time. Okay. So it wasn't the first time. No, it wasn't the first time, but it was kind of like, uh, you guys talk to like homeless folk, like guys on the street. Sure. Yeah. 
and like everyone's following some guy will ask you a buck for a buck or a smoke and they'll say yeah man i robbed the bank last night or i robbed the convenience store so i get arrested to go back to jail so i'd have a roof over my head right it was it was almost in that sense of like i didn't have a single fucking place to go i had a couple grand in my name from coming home from tour i don't know what to fucking do so i can either binge the rest of this money i have in drugs or see if this works you know so i went looking for a roof over my head and i came back a changed man <laughs> but still working but still working when you got sober mm-hmm. how long into your sobriety did you feel like you got over the initial hump of getting sober and you started to have thoughts about what comes next and you know everything underneath the addiction when when did you start to see what was underneath the addiction i i knew what came next was like figure out how to survive and get back on the road Mm -hmm. because it's really the only thing i know is is writing songs and telling stories and 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 doing the thing it's honestly why i still do it I, i don't i don't know at 35 34 what to do next besides write more songs but mental health wise it was like let's figure it out let's like all right when you pull substances out of your body after using them for so long you, you understand that you you feel it's a thing you know feelings uh and uh it's a fucking harsh wake up so i started doing a bunch of therapy and 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 worked on my mental health and i i was at home and i got set up actually django put me up right when i got out of rehab gave me a place to stay and, and get on my feet and then once i started figuring it out it was kind of off of the races mm-hmm. I, I played like two shows three shows right out of rehab that were really rocky and it was like the apple stomp that didn't happen the apple womp <laughs> <laughs> Feel like you were there adam did you do that the one that didn't happen no when when was that i feel like one of your bands was supposed to, this is 14 this is may of 14 there was a bunch of bay area bands that came out i thought I, for some reason I, in my head you were over there yeah i don't think he was touring at that point yeah i think uh gherkin slow gherkin played that right Ger- yeah. yeah gherkin yeah i didn't know if you were rolling out there with that crew you know um but um we did that and I did this thing in Des Moines. And then like I got back and I was like, nope, I'm fucking hightailing it to therapy. Uh that's the that's the plain plan. Uh but it's good. It, it's it, you know, and it, it was, you know, I do the program, I'm a fellowship guy. Uh I think it's great. I think that if you need to sober up, there are so many viable options to do so. I think that stigma is real dumb and uh, I'm, I'm real grateful to be here. That's what I'm trying to say here is, is I'm, you know, Hard. second chances are a fucking thing. Yeah. You can, you can roll in and if you do the work, well, we're glad you're here too. I'm stoked to be here talking about ska. Speaking of, <laughs> let's talk about, um, let's talk about when you turned your back on ska. Listen, I never turned my, <laughs> I never turned my back on ska. Ska turned its back on me. Oh, oh shit. Okay. Oh shit. Um, we didn't necessarily like, like we never, mm, it's not that I didn't. So being at panic state 
so I wrote all those songs like cowboy chords, folk songs, right? Country songs, mm-hmm. right? Just drumming like, oh, this is the song, you know, you go like uh, uh, a couple of Right, I just fucking playing folk punk or whatever you call it, right? And then we'd figure it out if, if, if you know, back to what I was saying about songs. If the skeleton's good, you can play it anyway, right? Um, so I I try and get a good skeleton, and then we'd figure it out. Um, and only a couple people really heard the skeleton demos that I had. Like, oh, you should make a record like Chuck Reagan or Brian Fallon or you know whatever. And uh, I asked Bean, I was like, Bean, can I have money to do this? Like. I'm going to get all my Scott friends to make a not Scott record and, and we'll make it with Pete from the souls. And I really wanted to work with Pete. You know, he was a regular at the lanes. Like we have beers all the time, you know, at the bar and whatnot. And I, and I just fucking love the basic souls and Pete writes a lot with them for them, you know, and uh, I knew that I could maybe learn something. Um, so we didn't, it's funny, the record that everybody says I turn my back on Scott is literally me and Ruggiero and Ara from the Slackers. <laughs> and and Pete from the Basic Souls. Like four people who, who legitimately love Scott. And Mikey from with the punches, who's now playing in Catch 22. Right? That's like that band. This is the fourth street signs. Yeah, it's all Scott dudes. And then the, the record after that is Cap Biting Me. Mm. Right, the untitled is is Chris and Tim, and um, Tim was playing bass. Chris played drums, and Curtis Irie, who's in the band Dulu's, and Pete. Like that's that record, right? I never t- and and Civil War. Like the pedal steel player is Alex Brumel from Westbound Train, and the piano player is Pat Kelly from Every Killer Texas Band. He was in the Suffers for a long time too. I never turn my back on Scott. We're just a bunch of Scott dudes not make. And even now the record I've been working on now, um, the guy I'm making with is Jay who plays a Newport secret six. Who's like, and he was in W John before forever too. He's like a, a Cincinnati coming to Kentucky. Like he's like the Scott guy. So I, so I know you have a new album coming out. That's not Scott, yeah. but you are working on a new, new album. That is Scott. We are working on a new, new album that is Scott. Tell, tell us a little bit about this. Yes. We are doing this thing for this record label that puts out Scott records. What's the label? I don't know. It's the Scott label. There's one Scott label. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not true, Sammy. Come on. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this, but it's, it, it's that Scott label and that split thing they do and some band called the pie tasters. That's all I know. Okay. Oh, okay. That's it. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know if it's really going to happen, but some guy whose name starts with M and ends in Ike said, do you want to do this? And we said, yes. All right. So you can read, read between the lines there. Yeah. Jade fire. Yeah, that guy from Jade Fire told me, like, hey, if you want to do a Scar record, you let me know. <laughs> Just like that. He's like, Yeah, you come to me on the eve of fest on my on the eve of my daughter's wedding and say, Hey man, can we do a Scar record? Yes. Yes, we will do a Scar record. Um, yeah, so so we signed to AF um and which is fucking awesome. And there's a bunch of records coming out, and then we're gonna rap on 
these sessions for the quiet record well after this is probably aired uh early december we're gonna wrap mix and then we've been literally writing we're gonna release about 40 songs next year um so i've been writing like a maniac i'm gonna take christmas off and eat a lot of cookies and then <laughs> um the pie tasters thing um jackson was like yeah let's do it but sammy's gonna write the song so i gotta write some pie taster songs too so do, who's gonna be in your ska band for the scar album um dream players like my dream like fuck you this rules band yeah so you could you, yeah, you get to put it out into the universe right now go ahead and name it and claim it your band for this all right bass player would be ben parry i fucking love ben parry cat bite love him all right ben my drummer would be this kid named named chris perez Another Pyres. I don't know how to, I've known I've been in a band with him for years. Chris. Chris. Uh Tim, this kid Tim, he plays a man called Cat Bite. <laughs> Tim. No, um uh I hollered at those boys, see who's around, who wants to do it. Uh I so, so I don't know what band it's gonna be, right? Because I recorded with some guys in LA and like some Texas guys. I need to have the song in front of me. And I can tell, like, all right, like this is a, this is a this or this is a that, because it's not like we're going to tour on, yeah, right? right. Like I have no yeah. interest in playing shows. I like I have no interest in playing shows. Period. Like I'm just fucking over it. Why is that? I got a house. Like I have a place that's mine, and I have unpacked sure. for the first time in realistically 15 years. Like COVID was weird, man. Like I'd never, like COVID was the first time I'd ever been stationary my whole life. Mm. And at like COVID hit, I was 30, 30, 31. Like we're talking about like on the run since 16, like 16 years of nonstop. Like, like I joked about, like you said, you know, how many shows did you do when you were doing with all those bands, right? Like 20, 21, 22, 23, like that three year gap, I, I broke a thousand shows in three years, like, which is more than a band that's been around for 10 years does. Sure. You know, like it's just, I, it's, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired that the music industry um, continuously lowers wages for touring musicians while the world's expenses gets higher. Like, let's be real. Like, I, I tour solo. I have a pickup truck. I throw two guitars, a box of merch, and I'll drive to play a weekend of shows. And those shows are great, and I'm having fun, and I'm I'm grateful for folks showing up and 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 whatever. But the venues won't pay. The venues won't adjust to inflation in the real world, and the guarantee. Let's say it's two, two hundred, three hundred dollars, right? Three hundred dollars five years ago meant that everybody could get paid for the show. Three hundred dollars now means I'm touring solo, and I have eight hundred miles to drive, and I, I'm not going to break even. You know, like I'm a place to stay and gas and food and a couple packs of smokes. Like I'm not, I'm out. Sure. Like I, I have to survive on merch. You know. Um. And, and I, I've been homeless. I don't want to fucking be homeless. I don't want to think about a meal. 
right? That unless things change Spotify wise, and that's me saying, I'm not going to play, like, I'm not, not playing shows. I have tours booked for next year. I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to jump in the van for three months straight tour. Yeah. Like I'm going to fly out to Seattle and do Seattle, Vancouver, Bellingham, Portland, Eugene, and fly home. I'm not going to go and tour to Seattle, which is a four month, a four week adventure, you know, a three week adventure. Um, yeah. I just, I, I just kind of think it's bullshit that like, it's, it's kind of wild. Napster, the company that got in trouble for stealing music is paying more than any other company. Yeah. That is crazy. And I heard that too. By like almost a hundredth or a 10th of a cent. Right. Which is wild that we're talking a 10th of a cent. Right. Right. It's, you know, um, like touring was a lot different and it's not about the money, but like when iTunes was a thing, like we were like, I was able to pay my bills off the iTunes bills when the iTunes store was open. And I, I didn't have to worry about, like, I could just go on tour knowing that like, all right, I'm going to make enough this month off of iTunes that my bills will be paid. And now with Spotify, like, it's just like, yeah, I need uh, to cover my expenses for the month. It's, I did the math the other day. It's 450,000 streams to cover my rent. And how much is your rent, Sammy? Not that much. <laughs> like, not that much at all. Like, that's why I live in Kentucky. <laughs> you know? I live in the middle of nowhere. And it's not the middle of nowhere. I live outside of Cincinnati. But I live in the Midwest because it's cheap. So I can legitimately offset the fact that if I lived in New York or LA or New Jersey, I would never be able to even leave town to play a show. It's just, it's fucking wild. Like I drove to Fest the other day because flights were just astronomical. Like I'm going to drive home next week because I'm not going to pay $800 to fly to New Jersey when a year ago it was 190 bucks. But yeah, sorry for the rant about the bullshit of the music industry. I figure, I figure if I start a ska band again, we'll be good, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ska's lucrative. Just make those ska bucks. Ska is lucrative. I will not turn my back on Scott. Scott will never turn his back on me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scott. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Scott available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. 
And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.